Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. New England's been waiting for years for real high-speed rail to get travelers more quickly from New York to Boston. But the path of that new line has caused some big headaches in small towns. Everything would have been impacted. The, the heart of our community, it would have been decimated. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankowski. We'll look at how resident complaints may have changed the path of a railroad. We'll also bring you stories about renewable energy. From a boom in rooftop solar in Vermont to a debate over solar panels as an appropriate use for farmland. You know, what's farmland? Well, usable farmland is something that can sustain a household. And ultra-efficient passive housing is quickly moving from boutique to mainstream. We want to make it so that if a building is not a passive house, then people say, oh, well, that's a real negative. Speaking of master builders, we'll take you inside the world of beavers with people trying to better understand them. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankowski. The Federal Railroad Administration says it's moving forward with a plan to bring high-speed rail to the Northeast. That would shave 45 minutes off of travel time on the trip from Boston to New York City. But to reach those time savings, the FRA proposed building a controversial new bypass that would have cut across historic landmarks and protected lands between New Haven and Providence. The FRA released a decision last week that removed that stretch from their plans. Cassandra Bassler from WSHU is here to explain how that happened and what it all means for the future of high-speed rail here in New England. Cassie, welcome back to Next. Thanks so much, John. There's been a lot of buzz around these plans to bring, quote-unquote, high-speed rail to the Northeast Corridor, but what exactly does this future plan do? Well, there has been a lot of buzz, both from people who are excited to travel between Boston, New York, and Washington, D.C., and from people who don't want these new train tracks running through their backyards. But basically, this plan is supposed to lay out what train travel will look like for the next 40 years. And any train-related projects that would get funding from the feds needs to follow the vision laid out in this plan. So 40 years, that's a, that's a very long time down the road. Uh, right now, the people in the eastern part of the state of Connecticut around the old Lyme area have been opposed to the construction of new track that they say would run through their backyards. It would run through historical sites. It would run through sensitive uh, marshlands. The residents of old Lyme had submitted thousands of comments to the FRA against the plan. Ryan Karen King from WNPR spoke with Bonnie Reemsnyder, the first select woman of Old Lyme. Uh, she said that she was over the moon to hear that the FRA had taken the bypass out of the plan because, as she said, it saved her town. When you travel through Old Lyme and you look at how our center is, how small it is, everything would have been impacted. Our commercial area, our historic district, the, the heart of our community, it would have been decimated. Yeah, Reem Snyder and several other politicians came out and said that the FRA's decision not to include this bypass was a huge victory. Um, the FRA recommended that Connecticut and Rhode Island do a capacity study instead. So they would work with the public to see what other routes might work to sort of uh, cut through 
around the winding train tracks on the coast of eastern Connecticut. But I talked with Daniel McKay. He's from the Connecticut Historic Trust. And on the day the decision came out, he warned that Fairfield County in southwest Connecticut near New York is going to face the same issues with construction. Within the same state, we have two radically different approaches to really the equivalent set of impacts. And I think Fairfield County is going to be pretty upset with, uh, with what they see today. So what's planned in Fairfield County is a rail corridor. They call it a right-of-way between Green Farms and New Rochelle, and that would cut through landmarks like the Bruce Museum in Greenwich and several historic neighborhoods. So the community only heard about this news in December of last year um, because CT Historic Trust was spreading the word. They haven't had as many public comments as Old Lyme, but Daniel McKay at the Historic Trust says that has impacted the FRA's decision. Those same impacts exist in Fairfield County to historic, cultural, and environmental resources. It's even more densely populated. Uh, there's perhaps even a greater number of historic uh, neighborhoods that are impacted in Fairfield County than, than upstate, and yet the FRA has not acknowledged those impacts. So, Cassie, it sounds as though the people in the southwestern part of the state of Connecticut closest to New York City, which is indeed a train culture, lots of people ride the rails to get back and forth uh, to the city, they didn't know as much about this plan ahead of time as many of the people in the eastern part of the state. It's, it's all something we've covered on the show before, which is many people in Connecticut and Rhode Island felt that they weren't uh, enough informed about the FRA's plans well in advance so they could stage any opposition if they had any. That's true. And so part of the critique that they're having is that they wanted um, the FRA to come into the communities and hold meetings. Um, this was also a critique that people in Old Lyme have, which is that instead of holding meetings, they had a public comment period where you had to submit comments online. Um, and now the Connecticut Historic Trust is sort of taking on this role where they're going to give meetings in Greenwich. In fact, there's one coming up in a few weeks um, where these sort of historic preservation communities are taking on the role that people say the FRA should have done months, if not years ago. Because in New England, Connecticut is the state where so much of the Northeast Corridor passes through, it was going to bear the brunt of any construction of new high-speed rail or really even any repairs to the existing rail system. Uh, Do the people that you're talking to in any of the parts of the state, Cassie, feel as though Connecticut is going to get the benefits of what high-speed rail could bring to the Northeast Corridor. Well, people are more optimistic than they were before. Um, the FRA's plan did say that upgrading train service and uh, safety on the tracks they already have is going to be the first priority. Um, they also want to increase the frequency of trains, running from about four trains per hour to 10 trains per hour. That will require more tracks and more stations in places like Fairfield County. The plan that came out last week specifically did mention a few um, new station construction projects, including a station in downtown Bridgeport that's been named the Barnum Station. So the fact that something like that is named in the plan is sort of an optimistic, it, it looks good for Connecticut that they will be getting some benefits out of this. Of course, Barnum, named after P.T. Barnum, the great circus impresario and, and son of Bridgeport, Connecticut. So I guess the question is, with all of this enthusiasm, at least in some quarters, about high-speed rail in the Northeast, are, are the preservationists who have been lining up in eastern Connecticut and Rhode Island and, and now maybe increasingly in southwestern Connecticut in Fairfield County, are they slowing down this progress of trying to get real high-speed rail where so many people ride the rails? 
Well, Gregory Stroud from the Connecticut Trust acknowledges that traffic in Fairfield County is a mess and trains could be part of the solution, but he wants a better process for figuring out that solution. We know that transportation is sort of at the breaking point now. So uh, I think that the, the federal government would be reluctant to simply engage in a sort of an extended uh, planning process. That said, uh, our sense is that it might be uh, quicker and a better solution to really engage the public and get them on board because once this plan comes out, and I think once Darianne or Greenwich uh, start looking at the impacts, I think that it might actually slow down the process even more. So already, Cassandra, this is a slow process. We're talking about planning the Northeast Corridor for the next several decades. Some of the the things that we've heard about in the last week are going to maybe slow things down even more. But what it all sounds like is improved train service, maybe more trains, some more stations. But what about high-speed rail, you know, the kind that they have in, in Germany or France or, or Japan? Is, is that what they're talking about coming to the Northeast Corridor anytime soon? Well, even the proposal itself never claimed to have this the speed capacity to reach like 200 miles per hour the way that trains in France or um, Germany do. Um, it says at its fastest speed, it could go 180 miles per hour. But the future of high-speed rail really seems up in the air until Connecticut and Rhode Island can finish this capacity study that's looking at this huge circle between New Haven, Hartford, and Providence. Right now, the plan says high-speed rail will save 45 minutes of travel time, but there's no explanation for how they'll save 45 minutes of travel time. The FRA has estimated that the bypass in southeast Connecticut would save about a half an hour, and that's the bypass that they just dropped out of the plan. Um, It was supposed to straighten out that scenic but winding coastal railroad track that the trains have to travel at at speeds as low as 30 miles per hour um, in southeast Connecticut. So so, so that really is the question now, right? With this whole section of the track between New Haven, Connecticut and Providence, Rhode Island up in the air pending further review, all of the time savings that they baked into this somewhere between a half hour of time and 45 minutes of travel time, that might not even be uh, achievable at all. It might not be. Um, But depending on who you speak to, um, the FRA says it could save that um, straightening of the track was supposed to save half an hour. Locals who looked at the timetable say it could save as little as 15 minutes. Um, So here we have sort of this debate happening, which is why the study is going to include more public comment and more public discussion. So right now we've got an administration uh, in Washington that says they want to put more money into infrastructure projects. And all over uh, the nation, including here in New England, states are lining up to put their infrastructure projects on the table. With all of the issues that you've just outlined, what's the timeline look like? I mean, when might we start to see some of these changes along the Northeast Corridor here? Well, there is a study that Connecticut is leading that's already underway, which could be encompassing this New Haven, Hartford, Providence Um, issue, like where to put the bypass. And even a year ago, Amtrak sent out a press release saying that they bought a new fleet of high-speed trains for this Northeast Corridor, and those trains could run more than 180 miles an hour. Amtrak says they want them on the tracks by 2021. The FRA already loaned them $2.5 billion to build the trains and upgrade the tracks to run them. So now we have to wait and see what funding could be available for this construction. 
Earlier in our conversation, Cassie, when you played some tape from from Greg Stroud, you mentioned the problems with congestion along I-95. For those who listen to our program, maybe in more rural parts of New England, and don't understand what the bottleneck is right along the Connecticut shoreline as traffic flows in and out of New York City, Give a little description. I mean, how bad is I-95, that corridor that people use to to drive cars right now that maybe more high-speed rail would alleviate? There have been traffic horror stories. I think Senator Chris Murphy collected a few of them about a year ago now, where people were talking about having to travel roughly 10 miles, and it takes 60 minutes um, just to go within that 10-mile vicinity around Stamford, which is sort of a large city hub in Fairfield County. For people who are commuting to New York City, those commutes on the train might make more sense, but also they're hoping that people within Fairfield County can use the trains to commute to work. It's all part of this bigger transportation question of can we shift the car culture to train culture in that area where a lot of people can afford to drive their own cars. I asked you before about the high-speed rail in in France and in Japan and Germany. Cassie, you just got back from a reporting trip to Germany. Did you take trains over there at all? I did. I took a lot of trains, and I took a high-speed train um, to Dresden from Berlin. It only took me an hour and a half. I, it was comfortable. It had air conditioning. There was places to put my USB charger in, and I had Wi-Fi. It was absolutely luxurious compared to some of the trains that I've been riding here in the Northeast. I suppose that that's the dream of high-speed rail, but uh, available right now in, in Germany. Uh, Cassandra Bassler covers transportation for uh, WSHU and for the New England News Collaborative. She joined us today. Thanks so much, Cassie. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. Coming up, new ultra-energy-efficient passive housing, an aggressive approach to cutting home energy use, takes off in Portland and Boston. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and global warming. New England's at a time of big change in the way we get our energy. Aggressive goals to cut carbon emissions have meant a move toward more renewable sources of power, but the shift from burning fossil fuels to harvesting sun and wind comes with challenges in a region where it's not always easy to find space for big energy projects. The New England News Collaborative is covering these changes in a project we call the Big Switch. First, let's go to Vermont, a state that's been leading the way on solar energy for years. It's got a small population, but big goals for renewable energy. That's meant more competition in the solar installation field, with big national companies coming in to fight for customers with homegrown companies. As VPR's Kathleen Masterson reports, that competition comes at a tricky time. The Utah-based company Vivint Solar recently announced it will be offering residential installations in Vermont. CEO David Bywater says his company was attracted to Vermont's green policies. It's always nice to have allies you know, pushing forward the green agenda and helping just the, you know, the population adopt solar. Uh, so I'm actually embarrassed that we weren't there earlier. The company already has a presence in the region. Vivint is the second largest residential solar installer in Massachusetts and does business in Connecticut and New York and recently expanded into Rhode Island and New Hampshire. And now Vermont. Vermont's a tiny state with a population of just over 600,000. 
It already has 40 installation companies working here. So at a glance, it may seem strange that national solar companies are coming to the state. But it may simply be that the state's policies to encourage solar development are working. In 2015, Vermont was, for cumulative solar capacity per capita, was seventh in the country. That's Sean Gallagher with the Solar Energy Industries Association. He says the residential solar market has been taking off nationally in the last few years. Gallagher says it's being driven by a combination of factors. For one, solar costs have gone down 65 percent in the last five years. And he cites new financing options like leasing that have helped more people access solar. And then the third thing, as I mentioned, is good state policies. And Vermont's been a leader there. Vermont has a good statewide net metering policy. That's been an important uh, driver. Net metering rules govern how much credit homes and businesses can bring in for selling their excess solar energy back onto the grid. Vermont recently rewrote its net metering rules. The new policy prioritizes putting solar projects on landfills or brownfields. That means some projects, like building solar in a farm field, will no longer be economically viable. But for homeowners, the economic incentives remain fairly high. And Vermont recently set a lofty goal of having 90 percent of its energy be from renewable sources by 2050. And when it comes to renewables, uh, Vermont may be a small state, but it's punching above its weight. And other national solar companies are taking notice, too. Earlier this year, Sunrun, headquartered in San Francisco, expanded into Vermont. And in 2015, California-based Solar City started offering residential solar installations in the state. In just a few short years, Solar City has amassed 1,000 residential customers. That's nearly half the number of projects Vermont's leading residential installer, Sun Common, has completed. Those figures don't include installations completed in 2017, which aren't compiled yet. James Moore is a co-founder of Vermont-based Sun Common. I think it's great that other companies are looking to help Vermonters go solar. Um, we welcomed Solar City when they came into the market. We welcomed these other national players. The reality is that we've seen uh, most Vermonters pick a Vermont company to go solar with. Here, I got you. Yep. So this is a, uh, a ground mount system, and it's essentially uh, referred to as a fixed array. That's Andrew Weibel, a co-owner of Catamount Solar, based in Randolph, Vermont. He says in some ways, larger companies coming into Vermont drive the market for all solar. For one, national companies often have a larger budget for advertising, which helps raise awareness about solar in general, and sometimes sends customers their way. When they come in, it sort of identifies that we're a local company, and we live here, we want to take care of our community, and, and I think that differential is actually good for us. The competition drives our market, I think. Weibel says with Vermont's new net metering rules, many of the commercial projects they used to work on, like putting panels on unproductive farm fields and building community solar projects, are no longer economically viable. So now the company may rely more on the residential market to drive business. And that's where the national companies coming to Vermont, like Vivint and Solar City, are focusing their efforts, too. But Weibel says Catamount Solar is looking to build a sustainable local economy, and that will appeal to some Vermonters. Because we're going to be here, and I doubt that a lot of them will be in the future. You know, they'll ride that wave, they'll make their profit, and they'll drive away. It's not clear if that prediction will come true. The residential market looks good right now, with low prices and regulatory incentives. But the market is volatile, and there's a big storm on the horizon. Companies are closely watching the Trump administration, which could impose tariffs on solar panels coming in from overseas. 
That would massively drive up the price of solar panels and stall this growing industry. That's Kathleen Masterson reporting. While Vermont has been pushing more residential solar in this volatile time, other states see the promise of solar panels helping to preserve dwindling farmland. As WNPR's Patrick Scahill tells us, solar energy is providing many farmers with new opportunities and questions. As Kevin Sullivan slowly rumbles his pickup truck across his 60 acres of property near the Connecticut-Massachusetts border, he leans in and asks me a question. What's farmland? You picture the one cow. Farmer Joe, like me, I got the thing and I'm going to tell you a story about my tomatoes and my peppers. But what non-farmers generally don't picture, he says, is how to pay for it. So there's this whole, you know, what's farmland? What's usable farmland? Well, usable farmland is something that can sustain a household. And for a while, Sullivan says one part of his property was pretty unusable, about 15 acres where the soil was heavy and bad for growing. He tried raising corn and hay, but then a solar developer came along, offering him a lot of money to rent the land, put up solar panels, and sell that energy back into the grid. He says the opportunity was too good to pass up. The money that comes off that acreage exceeds anything else I could do out there. For solar developers, southern New England is ideal. Tax credits and locked-in contracts with power utilities can help the finances work out, and many New England farms are basically move-in ready. It's a large tract of land that's flat and already cleared, and it's right next to a big transmission system. So uh, it is a perfect place for a solar project. That's Deepwater Wind CEO Jeff Grabowski speaking at a meeting to explain his company's plans to buy up some land outside of Hartford. It wants to put panels on about 156 acres of property, some of which is rented to grow crops. If built, it could be New England's biggest solar project, powering about 5,000 homes. Some residents think the project is a waste of agricultural space in a densely populated state, but for nearby farmers like Benjamin Freund, who both own and rent farmland, it's complicated. It's one of those issues, you know, call me in 10 minutes and I'll be on the other side of it. Freund says he used to just compete against other farmers when looking for land to rent. Now he's up against deep-pocketed solar developers, too. But for farmers who own property, he thinks land use should remain a personal choice. We want to have the ability to use our land for whatever we feel is its best and highest use. And on the other hand, we don't want to have to compete against an industry that's fairly highly subsidized. Through incentives. And while some states are working to steer solar to places like old landfills and get more environmental oversight in the siting process, the state of Massachusetts is proposing taking the incentive idea a step further, offering more money for projects where farming and solar coexist. It's called dual use. Johnny Rogers is a livestock farmer who also works with North Carolina State University, educating farmers about pasturing animals. He says he started thinking about dual use three summers ago, when he got a call from his landlord telling him he'd agree to put solar on a portion of the pasture that Rogers was renting. We actually live on that same farm, so you know, it did literally hit pretty close to home. So Rogers reached out to the solar company, asking if they'd let him keep sheep on the property, munching on the grass to make sure the panels stayed clear of brush. He says he now gets calls from other farmers and solar developers asking about the idea. You're harvesting solar energy as electricity, then you're harvesting solar energy as, as protein, basically, you know, through the lamb that would be produced. Rogers says farmers are resilient, and while he hates to see crops disappearing, he says solar has provided a lifeline to some farm owners in rural parts of his state. Money that he says can stabilize balance sheets and ensure land stays, in one form or another, farmed. That's Patrick Scahill reporting. While renewable power generations become a bigger part of the New England energy mix, 
There's innovation on the other side of the power equation, too. Conservation in the form of ultra-energy-efficient or passive housing is starting to take hold. So how efficient is it, you might ask? Well, imagine eliminating central heating systems altogether, even here in frosty New England. Maine Public Radio's Fred Bever takes a closer look. You may have heard about passive housing, residences built to achieve ultra-low energy use. Imported from Germany, it's been kind of a boutique-y thing here until recently, with eco-minded homeowners making costly upfront investments to downsize their carbon footprints. But now, New England is joining a surge in large-scale passive housing development. And the Bayside Anchor, a big, green, somewhat boxy-looking four-story building that overlooks a tidal cove in Portland, Maine, has joined the trend. Brand new from the ground up. This was a parking lot. Architect Jesse Thompson says the 45-unit project had to meet a lot of goals. Construction had to be cost-effective enough to get financed by public and affordable housing groups. It needed common areas and office space for Head Start and a community policing station. It had to be ultra, ultra efficient. And finally, it had to meet the needs of tenants like Peter Janes, who was one of the first to move in last winter. I know it has great insulation. I had to shut off my heat. February? (laughs) It was too hot. The building does have great insulation, extra great. Thompson says the exterior walls are several inches thicker than basic code would require. Recycled newsprint. It's 10 inches thick, you know, really well done. And there's triple glazed windows. So you can sit next to the window in the middle of winter in a t-shirt and you won't be cold. And that allows us to really radically downsize the heating system. As in, there isn't a central heating system at all. Instead, each apartment has a small baseboard electric heater with an estimated electricity cost of just $125 a year. It takes more than thick walls to achieve those energy savings. It also takes a near-perfect seal on the building's envelope and a high-tech ventilation system to purge moisture while keeping warm or cool air in, depending on the season. Thompson calls it the building's lungs. So all the bad air, all the bad smells go out, but the heat stays in. The fancy technical name is a heat recovery ventilator, but they feel like magic to us. There are other environmentally friendly features, a roof full of solar panels, and underneath the ground floor's polished concrete slab. Instead of a basement crammed with heating systems, big retention tanks allow rainwater to filter slowly into surrounding land, bypassing the city's overworked stormwater system. And all for a cost that's low for Portland's go-go development scene. Thompson says prices for high-efficiency materials and systems are dropping fast. And, he says, public housing agencies are beginning to embrace the long-term savings gain through lower energy and maintenance costs. Everyone's starting to see how the economics are working. They're giving extra points for meeting these energy goals. So it's gonna, we're going to see a big wave coming in the next five years. It's reached South Boston now. I don't want to be embarrassing about this, but it's a kind of miracle There, on the site of a 19th-century waterfront rum distillery, developer Fred Gordon is renting up the first apartments in what will eventually be a 65-unit passive housing building. I just, I could stand and look at this building all day long. I just eat it up. It's like having a new girlfriend. The building's very much like the one in Portland. Super tight envelope, high-tech ventilation, and no central heating system. But there's also an important difference. In this case, Gordon isn't relying on government incentives for affordable housing. He's going market rate and plans eventually to sell the units. In Southie's hot housing market, Gordon's got one advantage. He bought an entire city block there back in 1984 
when land was considerably cheaper. But he insists that the distillery project proves any developer can radically reduce a building's carbon output and still make a buck. Gordon says renters and buyers are willing to pay a 10 or 15 percent premium for passive housing features. It's getting to the point where, as an investment decision, increasingly attractive. And that's what we want to do. We want to make it so that if a building is not a passive house, then people say, oh, well, that's a real negative. Uh, I would rather do something uh, which is a passive house, just better. Officials at the Chicago-based Passive Housing Institute say it's still a big ask to finance market rate units that won't realize full energy efficiency savings for decades. But momentum for large-scale passive housing really did start gaining last year when the number of buildings the Institute certified doubled, and that number is on course to more than double again this year, with projects getting bigger and bigger, including a 350-unit New York City high-rise. That's Fred Bever reporting. To hear more from our energy project, The Big Switch, go to nextnewengland.org. If you think those buildings seem state-of-the-art, well, imagine building your own complex, sustainable structures with nothing more than sticks, twigs, and your teeth. Coming up, going inside the world of those crafty beavers. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. A few months back on the show, we met a team of researchers who are knocking over trees in the Vermont forest in an effort to restore biodiversity. But what if you could get animals to do the job for you? When it comes to wetlands, a new study in Scotland shows that beavers are habitat restoration pros due to their dam-building instinct. Since their introduction there a decade ago, one small beaver family turned a 30-acre pasture into a network of canals and ponds, increasing plant species by 50%. Yet that same industriousness can cause floods that spell disaster for homeowners here in New England, where beaver were reintroduced about 100 years ago. Some try to trap the animals, others to outwit them. Sam Evans-Brown, host of the New Hampshire Public Radio podcast, Outside In, takes it from here. Before we get into cohabitating with beavers, there are a few things you need to understand about them. First, beavers are hardwired to stop water. They have what's called a damming instinct. It's activated by running water, and it is strong. In one famous experiment, beavers were put in a dry, concrete room with a speaker that played the sound of running water. Just the sound, no water. The beavers built a dam right over the speaker. They build these dams so that they can store sticks at the bottom of their ponds. That way, when winter comes and everything freezes, they've still got a stash of tasty, tender twigs that they can access safely all winter long. Also, beavers on land are tasty morsels for predators, whereas beavers in water are really hard to chase, so more water means more safe spaces for them. If you've never seen a proper, massive beaver dam before, You need to get yourself onto the internet right now and look at some. The biggest one in the world is about half a mile long and 13 feet tall. It was identified from outer space. Beavers' teeth grow constantly, and they actually have to keep chewing wood to keep them in check. And yes, they do actually just eat wood. They eat the cambium, the soft, spongy layer of new growth that's just under the bark. I'd love to play for you some beaver sounds here, but they don't make many. 
The thing you're most likely to hear is when they slap the water with their tails if you freak them out. And on the ecological side, beavers do all sorts of great things. Beaver ponds help to ease flooding downstream. They also slow the water down as it rushes towards the ocean, meaning they help to recharge drinking water aquifers. Their ponds support large numbers of bird species, fish, amphibians, otters. They're what's called a keystone species, the keystone to a whole ecosystem. And they've been kicking around in North America for two million years. What's new, on the millennial timescale, are Europeans. We know that London, on average, received 70,000 beaver pelts a year. This is Anne Carlos, economic historian from the University of Colorado Boulder and who studies the fur trade of the 17 and 1800s. Um, and the French trade, they were bringing in about 166,000 pelts a year. When the Europeans arrived in the U.S., first went the fur trappers and fur traders, driven by intense demand for top hats, made from felt, made from beaver fur. After the fur traders came the farmers, farmers with an admiration for a byproduct of the beaver. Beaver were going to be both a source of cash for these settlers and, of course, a problem for the settlers because beaver are competing for the same environment. Beaver ponds, once the dams are destroyed and the water drained, turn into something called beaver meadows, which, as it turns out, are fantastic places to grow crops. So in the early 1800s, farmers started to create these fertile beaver meadows by force. They trapped any remaining beavers on their property, destroyed the dams, drained the ponds, and voila, a field was born. All these pressures were bad news for beavers. One study found that 16 states lost more than 50% of their wetlands as settlers rolled in. Another six states, mostly in the Midwest, lost more than 85%. By the 1890s, while in Canada they came through okay, all throughout the northeast of the U.S., the beaver were virtually wiped out. Meanwhile, year after year, we're building those farms built on old beaver ponds are connected together by roads. More of the fields are subdivided and turned into housing developments. Bit by bit, we begin to occupy the space the beavers once held. And then in the early 1900s, we brought the beaver back. Why? Because for one, biologists had begun to recognize how good they are for ecosystems. But also, people liked having them around so they could trap them. We reintroduced them, and helped them to build back up again until they numbered in the millions. We had set a trap, a trap for ourselves. Our roads were based on Native American trails, a high number of them. This is Pat Tate. He's the beaver biologist for Fish and Game here in New Hampshire. And uh, a high number of those Native American trails were based on game trails. He took me on a tour of his hometown, Hudson, and he's explaining why so much of our infrastructure is in a bad spot when it comes to conflicts with beavers. I can't say as a hunter who has walked all over the state of New Hampshire, their preferred wetland crossing every time has been a beaver dam. So. In other words, our roads and bridges, wherever they cross wetlands, very frequently, they're on top of natural pinch points, places where animals used to like to walk, Native Americans used to follow them, and beavers used to like to build dams. 
So all our roads are built in spots that are like prime, prime targets for beavers, basically. A high number of our wetland crossings are prime spots where beavers would have naturally chose to build their dam. Yep. Let me make this progression really simple. We eliminated the beaver. We filled in maybe 50% of their ponds or more in some places. We built our society on top and then we brought them back. Is it any wonder that they keep flooding our roads and our septic systems? And when they do, is it any wonder that our first response is to get rid of them? And to be clear, when I say get rid of them, I mean trapping them. And when I say trapping them, I mean kill them. But Pat actually argues that, in fact, trapping some beaver is actually something you should feel good about. This is because of a concept called carrying capacity. Carrying capacity is the number of animals the land can sustain. Disease predation and what's called intraspecific competition. Intraspecific competition is like sibling fights. Only their sibling fights are fights to the death. I've went into areas where people haven't trapped for a number of years and started removing animals and noticed that they are very bit up. And I once removed a beaver that had a beaver tooth in its back and it, it didn't grow its own tooth in its back. That was a tooth from another beaver that somehow broke off in the animal's back. As I've reduced numbers in the wetlands and went back subsequent years to trap, the amount of scarring and bite marks on the beaver decreases. So the individual beaver's health increases. So, so the, the argument is that by, by taking some of them, you're making life better for the ones who remain. Yeah, you absolutely are. By removing individuals from wetland system, it's making more food available for the ones left behind. You've heard this logic. You have to cull the herd. You have to thin the population for the individuals to thrive. This is called the American system of wildlife management. Instead of dealing with a troublesome animal every time one floods a septic tank, we decide how big of a population of a species we want and then make adjustments based on that decision. Are deer eating the shoots off of too many saplings out in the forest? Increase the number of deer hunting permits issued. Are farmers complaining about losing livestock to coyotes? Relax hunting limitations on them. Are there so many beaver that they're expanding wetlands until they flood wells and roads? Call in trappers to reduce beaver populations in that location. Done. If you've never seen one, the most common trap used to kill beaver is like a big rectangular spring. It's typically placed underwater in a place where beaver will swim through the middle of the square and hit a trigger, which brings down two stiff bars that catch the beaver right on the neck. We're working with a glorified mouse trap. Jeff Trainer's a trapper from southern New Hampshire, and he took us out on a cold winter day, walked us over the top of a beaver lodge. Do you ever hear them in there? Can you yep. ever hear them? Yeah. They do these little, it's almost like a wink, 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 wink. He found a spot he thought would work and chopped through the ice and set up the trap. Once I remove these safeties. There are still people who trap beaver in order to eat them to survive. Think First Nations in northern Canada. But there aren't many of them anymore. And while trappers do often sell the fur of the beaver they catch, a pelt doesn't go for very much these days. Most people who trap aren't doing it because they have to or because that's how they make a living. They do it because they want to. They want to connect with a tradition that they identify with. Or maybe they just like getting outside and doing the close observation of nature that trapping requires. 
And Jeff hears a lot of hypocrisy when he hears people call trapping immoral. He notes that you don't see the same outrage at housing developments or highways or parking lots, the forces that he sees really limiting the population of beaver. Our population isn't slowing down anytime soon. And as we encroach more, we're pushing them more and more and more. So where is that overflow going? There's only so many places that they can go. It comes to a point where you can say, well, let nature take its course. Or you can say, you know, as, as human beings, can we manage this, this creature with moral wisdom? This argument does not hold water for the most devoted beaver believers. You know, you always hear, okay, we have to kill the beavers so they don't get hungry. You know, and if you're an individual beaver, you know, you can imagine which choice they would choose if they had had one to make, right? <laughs> would you rather be hungry or dead? This is Skip Lyle, founder of Beaver Deceivers International. He has spent decades designing devices that, through strategically placed pipes, fences, and grates, gently redirect beavers away from human habitats. These are solutions that people are trying. People like Art Walensky. The whole situation is uh, unusual. We have two ponds, actually, an upper pond and a lower pond. He's retired and lives in a little development in New Hampshire with other retired folks. Out behind the houses are two beaver ponds, separated by a little access road. And uh, there are two large, four large culvert pipes that go underneath the, uh, the road. And running alongside that access road is a big old beaver dam. It goes up just about 300 feet. One of the ponds drains under the road to the other pond. And the beavers started to dam up the pipes, which led to even more flooding. That flooding could have led the roadbed to fail, and underneath this particular road was the sewer line for all of the houses here. So, if the beavers win, there goes the neighborhood. What we put in was uh, what's called a beaver deceiver. A few years later, Art also put in something called a pond leveler, a.k.a. a beaver pipe or flow device. It's a big flexible pipe. It goes right through the dam and basically tricks the beaver into thinking the dam's working when it isn't. To round out his defenses, Art also wraps the bases of any trees that he wants to save with a wire mesh that beavers can't chew their way through. So this is what people who oppose trapping say we should be doing instead. Use tricks to limit where and how much habitat the beavers can make. That way, when the little beaver babies grow up and start their own little beaver family, they won't be able to just make this pond bigger and move over to the other side. They'll have to go elsewhere. That means instead of coming into conflict with art, they'll come into conflict with things that normally keep beaver populations in check, like predators or other beaver, or maybe they'll just wind up in someone else's backyard. Skip argues that less trapping would mean more beavers, more wetlands, more water in the aquifers, more birds, and other wildlife. Oftentimes, the decision to cull wildlife is based on ecosystem science. Government biologists go out to try to estimate how many animals the land can sustain. That, again, is the carrying capacity. But sometimes, this decision is based on our willingness to tolerate animals. This, almost euphemistically, we call the cultural carrying capacity. And for beavers, it's often that cultural limit 
not the actual limits of the habitat that they bump up against. For the beavers on Art Walensky's property, they're bumping up against someone who's a member of Voices for Wildlife, an animal welfare advocacy group. I mean, I was raised on a farm. I used to hunt and I used to trap. I would never do it now uh, because back in those days, and probably, again, uh, if you look at most of the trappers who are my age or even younger, were raised in a time when people thought that animals had no feelings, animals didn't think, animals weren't rational. Well, we know that's not the case now. So that we know they feel that pain, we know they feel that loss and so on. So, if we did what art wants and banned trapping, what would happen? Turns out, we have some idea. So in 1996, um, there was a ballot referendum in Massachusetts that was put forward by animal welfare groups that wanted to eliminate the use of what they considered to be uh, inhumane traps. Massachusetts is one of a handful of states that has banned certain traps. Dave Waddles is the fur bearer biologist down there for Mass Wildlife. After the referendum passed, the beaver population tripled which, if you're a wildlife advocate, you probably see as a win. But three times the beaver means three times the beaver mischief. And as a result, the conflict with people and the complaints we received essentially skyrocketed. Uh, So in 2001, the state legislature amended the laws to pass a new law. And essentially this time, they developed an emergency permitting process. Emergency permits for trapping. Now, though... Those permits are given out by towns instead of the state. From Dave's perspective, this has all sorts of downsides. Nobody has any idea how much trapping happens in Massachusetts anymore. Beaver can be trapped in the spring, so you might kill mothers and leave young kits to be abandoned. And what happens to beavers that are killed under a nuisance permit? Previously, the the harvest that was done um, during our regulated trapping season, those animals were used by trappers. The pelts were used. Other portions of the animal were used. Uh, and it was a valuable resource for them. The beaver that are now taken during these emergency permits, quite often they're just trapped and then thrown into a a landfill and, and not used at all. It strikes me that this comes down to a question of how should beavers be controlled? Should we kill them, skin them and eat them and limit them that way? Or should we put in sneaky arrangements of pipes and fences, thereby limiting how much they can expand their habitat, and then let natural forces, starvation, predation, and disease, do the rest. Because, let's be real here, we're not about to let them expand back into all the places where they were living before the Europeans arrived. Think about it. If a beaver starts to seriously flood your property, your basement, if that flooding could cost you thousands and thousands of dollars, what would you do? I always thought I was kind of on the other side. I'm a hippie girl. For seven years, I said, you can't kill them. We have to outwit them. That's back when I thought that you could actually outwit a beaver, but you can't. I mean, (laughs) it's impossible. Carol Leonard is an author. And I was a midwife my whole life. When she retired, she and her husband decided to move to Maine. It was their dream property, and they set about building their dream home. But almost right away, they started to have trouble. 
the beavers were flooding a spot that was getting dangerously close to where they wanted to build their septic system. And for years, Carol tried and failed to make these beaver devices work. First, she tried a beaver deceiver. Then we tried a beaver baffler, which I think is a PVC pipe, and you drill holes in it. Um, The last one that we made, the beavers actually stole and hid somewhere, and we can't even find it. Eventually, Carol threw up her hands. So it did get to a point where I finally said, all right, I'm going to learn how to trap them, and we're going to eat them. I apprenticed with a um, trapper in New Hampshire, and I've been eating beaver ever since. It is a whole other different, you know, it's a whole different culture. But, you know, when you start thinking about hunting, we are meat eaters. We're, you know, we are hunter-gatherers. It's part of our, who we are. And so um, to be able to turn a blind eye to, to that is just a blind eye. I think the the traditions of hunting and trapping in New England are good, healthy traditions. Carol says over the years, she's trapped around 30 beaver from her property. There's still many of them left, a little downstream from the house lot. But in 2015, they were able to start building that dream home. And now they've finished. That pond that was threatening her septic system is no longer getting any bigger. The word is out, it's a really dangerous place for beavers to be, so. <laughs> <laughs> They've told their friends. Yeah, they have. They're, they're, they haven't been back. Beavers and people. We like to live in the same places. And if you ever find that a family of them are eyeing the same spot as you, well, good luck. That's Sam Evans-Brown, reporting with an excerpt from Outside In, the podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio about the outside world and how we use it. You can find the full episode at OutsideInRadio.org or wherever you get your podcast. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrew Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Production help this week from Maureen McMurray and Ryan Karen King. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. If you'd like to hear more of his music, go to ToddMerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and it's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.